so many times. He didn't give up uh, his divinity, his divine nature. But he gave up, according to Philippians 2, his right to glory. People didn't see his, his glory during that time. But now he's about to be glorified, Jesus is, by way of the cross, by way of his resurrection, by way of his ascension, by way of his rule, by way ultimately of his return. And so all that's right here, right, right, ready to happen in the life of Jesus. And it's a crisis, a spiritual and even a situational, if we can put it that way, crisis in the life of Jesus. Because he's going to face something which he doesn't deserve to face. Now, as human beings, we all face death. There's a sense in which that is what we deserve to face death and judgment. We're we're judged in our lives at various points by various ones. Parents judge and evaluate children. Teachers evaluate uh, students. Our bosses evaluate our performance. All those kinds of things. And so, so God is the ultimate judge. Now, Jesus should never have had to face this judgment because he had never sinned. He had never done anything against his Father. But we know that he was going on our behalf, going on the behalf of sinners to face this judgment. And so, It was huge. In fact, he was going to face hell for sinners. This innocent one who only knew intimate fellowship with his father was about to face being forsaken by his father. So he comes. He comes as this one who is is one person, two natures, God, man. And he comes and he faces this, this, this moment of crisis. And he prays. No surprise that he prays. Jesus prayed a lot. He prayed uh, because he was the perfect man. He was the man who knew himself to be dependent utterly upon his father. And thus he prayed all the time. He prayed often uh, privately, some publicly. Uh, and, and here again, we find him coming to pray in the midst of this, of this, deep, this deep crisis. And he prays to be glorified that people would see him and know him because he knows that in his being glorified, the Father is going to be glorified. That is, the Father is going to be shown to be great because what Jesus is going to do is he's going to give eternal life to all those whom the Father had given him. Eternal life. It's one of those words, isn't it, that we use all the time as Christians. It's part of our sort of Christianese dictionaries words, eternal life and saved and blessed and hallelujah. You know, all those kinds of praise the Lord kinds of things that we use. Now, it's, it's great to have sort of a language of, that we use as a shorthand as we talk to one another. That's a valuable thing. Families have that. You know, when families gather, if you've ever sat in on somebody else's Thanksgiving dinner, you realize that there's all sorts of little things being said, words being used that mean a lot more than what they appear on their face. Because some people laugh and some people get mad when certain things are said in that family circumstances. And that's good. And, and you know, as you've studied in various academic disciplines, that one of the most important things that you must do as you enter into any academic discipline is to learn the language of that discipline. Because there are words that mean specific things in the context of that discipline that may not mean exactly that outside of that discipline. And so it's important to learn that. And in the same sense, in the life of the church, we have those kinds of words that we use like saved, like blessed, like eternal life. And it's helpful to have those because because we can use them and, and get a sense quickly of what we're talking about. 
But there's two dangers, really, in having this kind of Christian ease. One is that it's fine as long as we're talking in-house. But when we're talking out-house, now that didn't come out quite the way I wanted it to. But when we're talking outside, then we may not be understood well. We use expressions all the time, I'm sure, in, within, in the lives, in, in conversations with unbelievers, that they have no idea what we're talking about. We think we're communicating, but we're not, because they don't have the same reference point, the same definition, and so forth of these words. So we have to be careful that when we use them in-house and we take them outside, or when there are others listening, that we explain these words, that we, we kind of help to bring them to, to that understanding. In the same way that if, 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 if a, uh, an academician uh, were uh, giving a lecture in his or her academic discipline, if he were, or she were talking to people outside that discipline, they'd have to define these terms. And so we have to make sure we do that. The second danger, which is really a danger this morning, among ourselves, is we've become so accustomed to these words that they really don't mean anything anymore. They're just sort of a shorthand way of keeping us from thinking. So we say these words, and we buzz right through it, and we're done. But, but it seems to be this eternal life thing is the crux, no pun intended, of the matter. little Latin kind of pun. Uh, no crux, it's the crux of the matter with Jesus. He's come so that he can give eternal life to all those the Father has given him. It's crucial for him. It's, it's the very aim of his life. And so the question is, what really does it mean? And I'll, I have to be really honest with you. I've struggled deeply to try to figure out how to say this in a couple of hours that I have. No, in just the brief period of time that I have. Because it, it's so ingrained in us, and it's so huge. It's so much of who we are, this idea of eternal life and this experience of eternal life now and forever and all that, that it's really hard to get our hands around it. And I think that's probably why we have it as part of our Christianese, because it means so much. How can we think about it and talk about it in detail every time we mention it, all of its various facets? I, I certainly don't think I can be in the next few minutes exhaustive on this whole idea of eternal life, but only to get a glimpse. You know, the normal kind of way of thinking about eternal life is to think about duration, think about quantity. In fact, even in the King James Version of John 3.16, we read, uh, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Begotten, that's another word, isn't it, that we use all the time? Uh, begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, in the newer versions the more modern versions, like even the NIV and the New American Standard and the English Standard Version that I read, say eternal life, translate that eternal life, as opposed to everlasting. The sense being that now we think of everlasting as just some sense of duration. Now, in the 17th century, everlasting may have had a deeper nuance than it has in these days. Even in the Apostles' Creed, the very last line says essentially that we believe in the life everlasting. Now, what sense do you get from that? I would suggest that primarily we get the sense of duration, of life going on forever. And that's not wrong. That's good. That's an aspect of this. But let's face it. Just thinking about living forever as we now live 
Is that a real hot prospect? Right? Living forever as we now live with the decline that exists physically, mentally, emotionally, uh, in the context of the kind of world in which we live, with the injustice that exists and the abuse that exists and the immorality exists and the pain that exists and the suffering that exists. Almost always, not always, but almost always, when a person is dying in the hospital and hospice and there is a loving family, there's almost always this sense of, I don't want this person to continue to go on like this because this isn't really living. And almost always there's this sense of, I come as the pastor, is it, can we pray that the Lord will take him quickly? Can we pray that the Lord will take her gently? Can we pray that the Lord will take her now? And of course we can pray that. It isn't in our hands to take that life. But there's this sense that we don't want life everlasting as life presently presents itself to us. I googled, does that make me sound cool? No, it probably doesn't. It's probably a better word for it now. But anyway, uh, I went on the machine that sits on my desk and hit eternal life, pressed it in and hit enter. A ton of stuff came up. One of the interesting things was from an organization called the World Transhumanist Association. Uh, seemed real, had, had people with PhDs after their names and so forth and so on. Uh, and the, the little byline of, the, of the, one of the many articles I got interested in reading by them uh, was, said this, the World Transhumanist Association in Chicago uh, met and Dr., uh, Dr. Sandberg and his fellow transhumanists planned to bypass death by using technologies such as artificial intelligence genetic engineering, and nanotechnology to radically accelerate human evolution, eventually merging people with machines to make us immortal. This may not be possible yet, the transhumanists reason, but as long as they live long enough, a few decades perhaps, the technology will surely catch up. And, and the hope of this organization that seemed quite legitimate, the hope of this organization is, is to keep us, keep human beings, at an acceptable level of decline. Even they knew that just simply hooking up to a machine wouldn't be really acceptable, but to keep us at a particular level of decline, mentally, I assume, and physically, so that we can function in some kind of way to, to, to live forever, to be immortal. Now, interestingly, the Bible uh, never speaks really of us being extinguished. The Bible speaks clearly about an eternal existence, an existence for everyone, the soul continuing to live, and ultimately, as the Scripture teaches us, a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. The resurrection, as the Scripture says, some to condemnation and some to eternal life. So there's, there's, there's this sense of eternal existence. So when we talk about everlasting life or eternal life, we're not simply speaking about existing forever. There's something significant about this word life that comes. That this is eternal, everlasting life from God. Life that comes from God. Notice 
these, these contrasts in Matthew in chapter 25 and verse 46. If you're familiar with this particular passage, it's the one where Jesus is speaking of the sheep and the goats. And he's speaking about those who belong to him and those who do not. Verse 46 says, And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so both exist, but some into eternal punishment, others into uh, eternal life, uh, as we see. And then, of course, the, the verse that most people are familiar with, if they're familiar with any verses in the Bible, John 3.16 uh, but let me begin with verse 14, verse 15, because it often gets overlooked, and it's quite a nice one. John 3.15 says that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so you get this contrast of perishing and eternal life. And perishing is an annihilation. It goes back to this idea that we just read about in chapter uh, 25 of Matthew of, of, eternal, of eternal punishment. But there's contrast here. And then in chapter 3 in verse 36 of John's Gospel, we read this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. And so we have eternal life and we have something that isn't life, but rather is the wrath of God remaining upon him. So this eternal death. So when Jesus speaks about giving eternal life to those whom the Father has given him, he's not talking about simply existing forever. But he's saying there's something that they don't now have, something that if I don't give to them, they won't have. In fact, if I don't give this life to them, what they're going to have is eternal punishment. What they're going to have is eternal death in that sense. Eternal separation from the blessing and the love of God. We could go on in those passages, but I won't. But there seems to be something then very desirable as we read through the Scripture concerning this eternal life. Do you remember that there was a lawyer who came to Jesus and said, Really asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There's a sense in which it was he, he desired to have life eternal, not just existence, but something that was called life that would go on, something different, no doubt, than what he had was experiencing. There was another man who was rich. This rich young man comes to Jesus with the same question: What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, in a sense, began his response to each the same. He, he referred them in one way, shape, or form to the commandments. He says, what are the commandments? And he says to this lawyer who comes to him, do this and you will live. That is, if you do love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. He didn't put it like that. He listed out commandments. But, but essentially saying that, he says, if you do that, you will live. There's a sense in which then this eternal life is somehow connected with following after God. It's somehow connected to obeying his commandments. It's connected there. He says, if you're a person who loves me and loves others, if you're a person who honors me, if you're a person who, who, who loves your neighbor as yourself, that's real life. Now, of course, the problem for us is that we don't. 
It's fascinating as Jesus lays out this, this parable of the Good Samaritan. Again, another very common story that Jesus uses. You might remember it. There was a man who was beaten up and, and there were two religious figures who, who walked by him who was this beaten up man on the road. Two religious figures, they walked by him on the other side of the road. And then this Samaritan comes up And if you remember the story, he cares for him. Now, the fascinating part of that is that when Jesus would have said to this Jewish lawyer, a Samaritan came up, do you know what would have happened in his heart at that moment? He would have said, I hate Samaritans. And at that moment in time, Jesus had gotten him. At that moment in time, he had said, this lawyer, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, obey the commandments. And he listed all the ones about loving each other. And so then he begins to tell this story. And when he mentions the Samaritan, at that moment in time, 100% guaranteed that this lawyer would have realized he doesn't love. And at that point in time, would realize, I don't have eternal life. If it means having a life that is blessed by God, if it means having a life where people actually love each other. Because isn't that what, 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 what really ultimately people desire? We don't want to live this life forever. This life of injustice, this life of, of poverty, this life of pain, this life of suffering, this life of insecurity, this life when tornadoes can come through and kill people, this life where, where people can die on the highway, this life that we live, we know as Ecclesiastes says, because God has put eternity in our hearts, we know this isn't it. We don't want this forever. At a minimum point, as the great, if I could put it that way, atheist uh, Bertrand Russell puts, it would be boring. What, what would we do forever? This? How many Super Bowls can you watch? Super Bowl 6,743. You remember who won last year? Actually, I can't. But, uh, but it's associated with some moral value of love for each other to where life is good and life is pleasant and life is safe and life is secure. Where there isn't poverty, where there isn't pain, where there isn't suffering. That's eternal life. And Jesus said, well, there's something that's come in and it's messed this all up. Well, you've missed it. And, 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 and even as I tell you this story, it's going to have a wonderful ending because the Samaritan's going to come and he's going to care for this, this person who was beaten and all of that. And you're going to look at that and, 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 and I'm going to say, well, then, who's the neighbor in this story? And it's the one who loves. And the, Samar- the, the Jewish lawyer is going to think, I don't love don't have eternal life. The rich young man that comes to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus says, well, what do the commandments say? And, and, and he goes through all of those. Jesus lays them out and the man says, well, I've done all of those. And Jesus says, hmm, really loved? Loved like that? Well, let's test that love. Sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. And at that moment in time, that rich young man realized what and whom He loved. He loved his stuff. And he loved himself. And he didn't have, couldn't have, 
eternal life. And it wasn't his fault that eternal life didn't exist for everybody. It was all of our faults together that eternal life doesn't... Nobody's like that. He was just a representative. As was the lawyer. A representative of us all. So there isn't eternal life. And so it has to come. It has to come as a gift. So Jesus says, I'm going to come and give it to those you've given to me. And it's going to be through my death. It's going to be because I'm going to, to take the penalty of their sin upon me so that all those who believe in me shall have real eternal life. I'm going to take that sin away. And my spirit's going to come and live in them. And as my spirit lives in them, there's going to be a sanctifying, a purifying, a cleansing, a transforming process. And so we'll see glimpses even now of eternal life as people love each other and are kind to each other and all of that. And then a day is going to come, even after they die, they'll realize they don't die in the sense of being condemned die. They die physically, but live spiritually. And the day is going to come, and the resurrection is going to come, and they'll have a body that's imperishable. And then we'll be in a place at a time in the very glory of Christ when there will be no tears, when there will be no grief, when there will be no pain, when there will be no poverty, when there will be no injustice. And they will bask in the very glory of Jesus because everything is going to reflect him. And and that, he says, is life and life is. Eternal. That's what I've come to give them. Eternal life. And so Jesus said, eternal life is this. Knowing you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Because you see, there's no knowing this eternal life. There's no having it until we know God. And we get a sense from that that it's more than just knowing facts about God or knowing facts about Jesus. They're all important. Jesus says, they've got to know you, the only true God. So if our, if our reference point is wrong, if we, we have the wrong God, then there's no eternal life. They've got to know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. They've got to be accurate about who God is, that he's holy, that he's righteous, that he's just, that he's loving, that he's sovereign, that he's wise, that he's gracious, that he's merciful, that he's compassionate, that he's creator, all of that. And Jesus, born of a virgin, this very one, God with us, this very one who comes and lives perfectly, dies for the sins of sinners, rises from the dead, uh, ascends, rules and reigns, returns. That Jesus, not just a Jesus that people make up. It's got to be that one. We've got to have the facts straight. I remember one time going to a a um, uh, back-to-school night, sitting with one of my kids' teachers. I won't tell you which one. And this teacher was describing this child to me. And I thought, really? <laughs> he's not like that at home. I'm sure glad he's like that at school, but, oh, I just blew it, didn't I? Uh, uh, I just went to his graduation, just got his MBA on Friday, so he's, he's done better. But, 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 but I, I just thought, this is really uh, fantastic. I just don't know this boy. Uh, that you're talking about, but I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad he's doing so well. Glad you like him. Uh, but, uh, uh, or have you ever been at a funeral where the eulogy is given and you go, whoa, that was my Uncle Joe. I never knew that. I don't think he was like that at all. You've got to have the right facts about God. This Jesus. So that's important. But we know it's deeper than that. It begins with that, but it's deeper than that. You can't know him without knowing these things about him. 
But when the Bible uses the word to know him, we understand, we get a sense of what that means. I mean, even around this room this morning, and you know some people here better than you know other people. I mean, all you know about some of the people here is where they always sit. Whatever that tells you about them. You know they sit there. You know this person. Yes, they sit here. Uh, others you may have met and have some acquaintance with. But you know that the people that you really know are people that affect your life. That when something happens to them, it happens to you. That's really knowing them. You know their thoughts. When, when they have ideas and thoughts, those ideas affect you because you know them. Sometimes they can affect you positively or negatively, but when you know them, you, their thoughts affect you. And thus to know God means that He's affected us, that, that we're related to Him. And, and the place that we become to know God is in our weakness and in our sin. That's when we come to really know Him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's even the beginning of the knowledge of God. To understand who He is and who we are in relation to Him. So we began this morning in our worship singing, Holy, 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 with the hope that that would fix our frame of reference, that God is holy. And in the midst of that, to realize that we're not apart from Him. We're not holy. And so we confessed our sins so we could worship Him. And we moved into that. And then, and then this Psalm 63, the reason, reason that, that, that that was highlighted, if you will, to give us a moment there with that, was to say that's, that's a person who desires to know God and who knows Him. Because you see, when you know God, you realize He is my all in all. He is my eternal life. He is the very one to whom I cling. He's the very one when He says, but you shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of my mouth. When He says that, we say, yes, that's right. I can't live without Your Word. I can't live without You telling me. I can't live without You communicating to me what life is about and who I am and all of that. I can't live. There's no life apart from that. It's only death and insecurity and frustration. Hell. So we must know Him, and we know Him in the midst of, of our weakness and in the midst of our sin. That's when we learn that He is the gracious, loving, merciful, compassionate Savior. He's someone who doesn't know their own sin, and someone doesn't trust in Jesus, doesn't know Him really. They really don't know Him. Because He is that. He's the gracious, kind, merciful, compassionate Savior. And it's there that we know Him. It's in the midst of that, that, that realization that I don't have eternal life. In the midst of that realization of the lawyer. I, 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 when I read this parable of the Good Samaritan, I can just feel the burn. And I can feel the conviction in the middle of this story just happen because you know that Jesus is just so right <laughs> and it's just happening I say yes I don't have eternal life I need someone to give it to me someone who does love someone who is love 
And so Jesus says, here it is, trust in me. That's when we come to know him. Who is he? Who is this Jesus? He's the giver of eternal life. The giver of that life, you see. We know him there. We know him in his resurrection because he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And even though you die, yet shall you live. I know him as the very one. I trust him as the very one. That even though I will physically die, and even though I will share this experience of some of you in this congregation dying, we'll share that together, even as we have in the past, and we will continue to as we live in community with each other. We know, because we know Jesus as the giver of eternal life, we know that that one who passes has already passed from death to life. Because we know him. And he's that very, that very one. This is eternal life. In 1836, a man by the name of Robert Murray McShane preached on this text, or at least wrote upon it. And he talks about Jesus as the giver of life. And here's how he puts it. It's rather amazing when you think that this is a 19th century person. He's actually describing something that happens now medically that I'm sure he had no category in his brain for. But he writes this, Suppose it were possible for a dead limb to be joined into a living body so completely that all the veins should receive the purple tide of living blood. Suppose bone to join bone and sinew to sinew and nerve to nerve. Do you not see that the limb, however dead before, would become a living limb before it was cold and stiff and motionless, full of corruption. Now it's warm and pliable and full of life and motion. It is a living limb because joined on to that which is life. Or suppose it's possible for a withered branch to be grasped in, graft, grafted into a living vine so completely that all the channels should receive the flow of generous sap. Do you not see that the branch, however dead before, becomes a living branch before? It was dry and fruitless and withered. Now it's full of sap of life and vigor. It is a life. It is a living branch, for it's joined to the vine, which is life. Well then, just in the same way, Christ is the life of every soul that cleaves to him. He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. Is your soul like a dead limb, cold, stiff, motionless, full of corruption? Cleave you to Christ. Be joined to him by faith. And you shall be one spirit. You shall be made warm and vigorous and full of activity in God's service. Is your soul like a withered branch, dry, fruitless, withered, wanting both leaves and fruit. Cleave you to Christ. Be joined to Him, and you shall be one spirit. You will find it true that Christ is the life. Your life will be hid with Christ in God. You will say, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. If you know Christ, you know that. And we know that this eternal life is indeed, in one sense, to come. It isn't here in its fullness. We still see injustice and poverty and hatred. And we have insecurities and discouragements and depressions, disease, physical death. So we know that it is indeed to come. In fact, I read 
in our call to worship from Titus in chapter 3. As Titus puts it like this, he says, So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We live in that hope. But but there's some sense, significant sense, of eternal life at work in us now. That we know Christ. And so there's this sense of eternal life working in us now that's transforming, that's changing us, that's enabling us, causing us to love causing us to have this great hope, causing us to really live. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me and for us that we could, in fact, to whatever degree that we can, get our arms around eternal life. That we can be secure that it is found in knowing you through knowing You and in knowing You. So I pray, Father, that You would reveal Yourself to us in full measure that we may live eternal life now looking ever forward to the eternal life that is to come. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, the response to our benediction is a long one. I believe in Jesus and have eternal life. (laughs) Hallelujah. Uh, Because to believe in Jesus, to rest in Him, is to know Him. And all who believe in Him have eternal life. And since that is good, then we say hallelujah. Now we know what that means, hallelujah, don't we? It's just not a Christian buzzword. And then you say, well, if I say that, then we get to leave. But it means praise be to God. Praise be to God. Please receive this as God's benediction now to Him. Who is able to do immeasurably, immeasurably more than you can ever ask or imagine through His power that is at work within us. To be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, I believe in Jesus and have eternal life. Hallelujah.